Well, good morning. My name is Dave Dorst. If I haven't met you, if you've not been here before, our senior pastor is traveling this week, and our youth pastor, as you heard, is at a high school retreat. And it's been an exciting week, though, as John already kind of prayed for our new uh, babies. We've had four babies in the last couple weeks. We just missed getting an Easter service baby. Uh, Gabriella Morris, she got home and had that baby. Would have been exciting. He is risen, huh? That's right, he's alive. Peter and then uh, Rachel Silvernale has uh, had her fifth, and that's the ninth. Uh, yeah, first girl, second grandbaby for Dave and Joanne. So congratulations, Joanne. Grant, what'd I say? Yes, second granddaughter, so out of nine. Exciting times. So if you have a outline in the bulletin. Well, I didn't know how long I would uh, bore you brag about our Europe trip, our 20th anniversary trip, but i got to tell one more story to set up this morning's sermon. Deb, I've got a couple of slides. Um, and one of the places that my wife and I got to visit in Europe, in Switzerland, was Zurich. And we visited Grossmünster, as the name of the church. And we toured the church, took pictures from its tower. Show them the next one. Cheesy uh, slide there. But uh, there's the... Uh, cityscape as you look out from the high tower of Grossminster. Go to the next one. I try to get it, capture it in a panoramic, kind of kind of dark, but it was a fantastic trip and a great day. If you don't know uh, that name, Grossminster, and, and how Zurich was involved in the Protestant Reformation, you need to know the name Ulrich Zwingli. Uh, you probably Unless you've studied church history a bit, I mean, you've probably heard of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, some of those famous names. I don't know if just because it's a little harder to say, but Zwingli was a great pastor and reformer as well. And he's known for being one of the first pastors to preach through books of the Bible. So we like that. Um, He was also known for protesting many of the unbiblical practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And and one of his more famous acts was to have his congregation all eat sausage during Lent in defiance. Because uh, he said, that's, that's not in the Bible. We can eat meat. So there was a man in Swingley's congregation named Felix Manns. And he started reading the Bible because that was one of the things that the Reformers said. We need to go back to the sources. We need to go and read the scriptures for themselves. And Felix Manns actually started having a Bible study in his home. And he uh, began to gather friends and followers. And they called themselves the Swiss Brothers. They, and he began to have sort of different understandings 
of scriptural doctrines than his pastor. Um, and I guess he's part of what we call the radical reformation. And, and his, soon these Swiss brothers decided that they were going to baptize one another because they had come to the conclusion the Bible never commanded infant baptism and that they needed to receive adult baptism after they professed faith. So they were called the again baptizers or the Anabaptists. Now remember that back then, you didn't just attack people's theology on social media, right? You got the authorities involved. It was, it was really where the church and the government were so intertwined that the government often took uh, deviations as, in theology as attacks on the state. And at that time in history, cities were either all Protestant or all Catholic. And so they all turned on the Anabaptists, unfortunately. The Zurich City Council banished the Swiss brothers, and they all fled to nearby villages. But Felix Manns was captured and sentenced to death. How did they do it? Cruelly, they baptized him one more time. They said, if you want to be baptized, rebaptized, we can do that. And they held, held his hands, tied his hands behind his back and plunged him into icy cold water till he drowned. But he, as he was going down, he was singing, into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. As this story reminds us, baptism has been a big deal throughout the history of the church. Having a right view of baptism has been occasionally a matter of life and death. Thankfully, we don't treat our theological disagreements with the same level of animosity, I hope. That doesn't mean there aren't key questions to answer, though. And today's text shows us the importance of baptism, but it's an easily misunderstood one. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to just read this up front and pull it completely out of context, but then I'll set it in context and see if we can wrestle with it. Now when they, which is the crowd gathered at Pentecost, when they heard this, Peter's preaching, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And if I have not told you before this prayer that I almost always pray right here after the reading of the scripture is from Ulrich Zwingli. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. 
open and illuminate our minds that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and rightly conform our lives to it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So context. Acts chapter 2 takes place on the day of Pentecost. Penta, meaning 50, a festival, harvest time. The apostles had been waiting in Jerusalem in the upper room because Jesus had told them in Luke 24, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So on this day, the Holy Spirit descended upon them. Remember the story, tongues of fire, and he gave them the gift of speaking different languages. And they went out, and in Jerusalem that day were many people from all over who were kind of astonished to hear them speaking their native tongues. And there's a lot of confusion. But Peter ends up presenting the good news powerfully to the crowd that gathers that now they've had this huge display of God's power, Peter explains it. And so our text comes, verses 37 through 41, it comes right at the end as Peter finishes telling them that Jesus was crucified according to the plan of God revealed in the Scriptures. And the people believe him. They want to know what to do about it. So his response is, repent and be baptized Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so, quick and easy, the formula here seems to be this. Just take the words out. Repentance, right? Confessing your sins to God. Plus, baptism equals forgiveness plus Holy Spirit. Right, just a, a very plain reading of that passage. Sort of make a math equation out of it. And lay out how to come to God. Saving faith in Jesus Christ is not explicit there. I would call that implicit. The baptism is in the name of Jesus. But is this what the rest of Scripture teaches us? Is this even what the rest of the book of Acts teaches when people say, what do I do to be saved? Let's look ahead. Acts 20 and 21 says that Paul was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and baptism? No, of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then actually moving back a little, in Acts chapter 16, do you remember the story of the Philippian jailer? Paul and Silas, his traveling companion, have been thrown in jail for preaching, and an earthquake comes and sort of destroys the jail. And so they are free to go, and yet Paul says, hey, everybody stay where you are knowing that the jailer would lose his life if they left. And the jailer is amazed and comes and says, what do I do to be saved? And Paul's reply is in Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, 
He doesn't mention baptism. But what do they immediately do? They go to his house, and everyone in the house, in his household, is baptized. Baptism followed as a testimony to his conversion, as an act of obedience to Christ. But Paul doesn't mention it in his salvation answer, or really anywhere in his writings, as a condition for salvation or faith. So at this point, actually, we, we could ask this question. Peter seems to be teaching one thing. Maybe Paul's teaching something else. Maybe they just had different theology. And so Paul's teaching salvation by faith alone. But Peter says, no, no, you, you need baptism. And what's going to muddy the waters a little more is the next verse that I have in your outline there. First Peter 3.21 might seem to support that idea because it says baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So read very plainly and out of context, I didn't read it all around it. It's, it's hard not to hear the phrase baptism now saves you, right? You heard that in there. It's hard not to hear that as anything other than, okay, you go through baptism, and now salvation has come, and you're good. But the greater context of that section that Peter's talking about is the idea that Noah and his family were saved by the ark from dying in the great flood. And he says now that baptism corresponds to that. And it's interesting. He's speaking about Christ's resurrection as being his baptism. It actually is great that this comes right after Easter. This could have been part of an Easter sermon that we are saved by Christ's resurrection in the same way that Noah was saved by the ark. So I want to caution us. We can't read too much into Peter's statements and the ways that he phrases them to think that being baptized is necessary for salvation and forgiveness. We have to always remember, what's the best way to understand Scripture? Other Scriptures interpret for us, right? And there is no conflict between Peter and Paul because in Paul's or Peter's letters, he teaches clearly that salvation in Christ is by faith and it's not by baptism. Listen to 1 Peter 1 3. According to his great mercy, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in 2 Peter, the opening, to those who have obtained a faith in equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now before we talk too much about what baptism is and its significance, I want to talk about two opposite errors that we can make about baptism. The first one is thinking that it's kind of optional. It's not that important. Uh, I was 
part of a denomination for a time that made one of its major distinctions not talking about baptism. It was, uh, it was a denomination that came out of Sweden, and I think it was a reaction to Lutheranism and some other denominations that just really uh, wanted to argue and, and make baptism a, a thing to keep people out of the church, and I think they were just tired of dealing with it. That's how it was explained to me. Um, I grew up Presbyterian, but I was in this Evangelical Covenant uh, church. And so when I got licensed uh, in that church, I had to sign a statement saying, I will not force my views of baptism on my congregation. <laughs> I was the assistant pastor, youth pastor. I was like, oh, that's fine. I can live with that. But what ended up happening was that a lot of families didn't make decisions about baptism. It very rarely happened in that church, either infant baptism or believer's baptism. And we were going to accommodate everyone, but it didn't happen. We didn't talk about it. And you, you won't necessarily hear a lot of Christians saying this or admitting it, but it's easy to feel that many Christians see baptism as just unnecessary, a distraction, a secondary issue, maybe just something to please the parents and the pastors But on the other end, the other extreme, I think, is the error of what sort of the whole premise of this sermon is that baptism confers salvation. That would be the other. One author who wrote about uh, Catholic and Protestant differences, Tony Lane, insisted that in the New Testament, salvation, union with Christ, forgiveness, Washing, regeneration, receiving the Holy Spirit are all attributed to baptism. And he says, if if you don't agree, take it up with the apostles. That's how he reads scriptures. And that is what we would call sacerdotalism, which is a very fancy word for saying that salvation comes through the sacraments that are administered by the church. So back to Zwingli and Luther and Calvin who said, no, that's not true. And so how do we answer that? Again, we search the scriptures. I've listed a few. There are many more. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 4, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Our salvation comes when we believe the essential truth that Jesus Christ bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. That his death atoned for us, giving us new life and access to God the Father. That is salvation. 
So baptism is not part of the salvation equation, but whatever baptism is or is not, it's vitally important because it's one of the things that Jesus commanded as what we call his great commission. The very end of the, cha- uh, the book of Matthew Twenty-eight, nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, doing what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus says, in your going out and making disciples, which includes evangelism and establishing churches, ministry, make sure... You baptize them in my name. So one of the things that baptism is, is a sign. It's a symbol. It's sort of a visual representation of what? Well, baptism shows on the outside what's happening inwardly. It's what God is or will be doing on the inside of a person. It's, it's hard to understand spiritual work sometimes, right? I mean, we can see uh, how a person changes by their actions, but it's hard to imagine and, and understand what's going on, that the old self passes away and we get a new self, that the Holy Spirit gives us a new heart, not a literal new heart, but a spiritual heart. That he brings healing and cleansing. That our sins are forgiven. That in the sight of God we are justified. And we are holy. We wear righteous garments. But that's all on the inside. Right? But baptism pictures that externally. The washing with water represents what is going on. Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We were baptized in Christ's death and raised by the glory of the Father. Beautiful picture. Baptism is also a seal. And we call we talk about it as an admission, an entrance into the visible church, the covenant community of believers. Now you may sit there and go, wait, 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 I thought that was membership. Don't we have these new member classes and we have to join and they announce our name and that membership is that, right? And it's true. Membership is allowing you to be a member of a specific church. Baptism is the entrance into all Christian churches, into the actually invisible church. Um, We talk that if someone has never been baptized before, as an adult or a teenager, they should profess faith in Christ join the church, and undergo baptism to show all the things that have happened to them spiritually, right? We agree with uh, 
the Baptist denomination, other denominations that baptize adults. We agree that when you come to faith in Christ, if you've never been baptized before, absolutely, it's time to be baptized. And it's bringing you in to this community. John talked about it in his welcome. We welcome you into a family because Christians shouldn't live the Christian life alone. You should be part of a community of like-minded believers who support you, who love you, who will minister alongside you and to you. But we also recognize that God works through families. And when parents, or one parent at least, when parents are believers who have been part of a church and been baptized, we urge them to extend that same covenant blessing to their children. And we see that as an extension. That's what they did in the Old Testament with circumcision. That's the uh, sacrament that baptism replaces. And at a young age, the Hebrew males were circumcised to show they were part of the covenant community. Now in the new covenant, we don't need blood. We use water because Christ died. We share the treasures of the church and the faith with our children. Because remember, what does Peter say in verse 39? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, my parents taught me a lot of things, as I'm sure yours did. They passed on their way of life, their understanding of the world, good and bad. I remember hearing the value of hard work at an early age, a job worth doing is worth doing well. I'm sure your dad had dad phrases like mine. They stuck with me. They taught me to live simply and humbly the value of a dollar, of tithing, of saving, of rooting for the right sports teams, of competing hard, but within the rules, mostly took on that one, of respect for authority, all kinds of things. I mean, not, not everything took. Cooking, dressing well. It's a good thing I got married pretty young. But my point is, they passed on what they knew and they believed. And the biggest thing they passed on to me was a relationship with God through faith in Christ. That they not only took my brothers and me to church and expected that we would hear it and embrace it there, but they took the time to explain it, family devotions, teachable moments when uh, situations in life tested our faith or where we had an opportunity to live out Christ's teachings. They let me know that this was all real to them. And it, it was the most important thing in life. And that's the most important thing that I want to pass on to my children. Do I care that they get a good education? 
that they're responsible and respectful, that they grow up, find a job that utilizes their gifts and skills, all that stuff. Yeah, I hope so. But you know what? I'd rather have them living in a trailer, making minimum wage, dropped out of college, life somewhat of a mess, if they're still clinging to faith in Jesus Christ. I'd rather have that than see them succeed in life with all the wealth and accomplishments and status and friends, but they've dropped their faith. Because the biggest tragedy in life is not underachieving. It's dying without faith in Christ. And that's what we cling to when we baptize our children. I'm not saying you don't care about your children if you don't agree with that at all. But passing on the faith to them by including them in this visible church, this covenant community... I think, I think we say it every time we baptize a child. We are not claiming salvation has undoubtedly been given to this child. We are simply claim, claiming that we covenant with God to raise this child in the Lord. And we're asking him to bring this child to faith in Christ when they're older. R.C. Sproul reminds us that without Christ, his death, his resurrection, the imputation of his righteousness to us, and the imputation of our guilt to him on the cross. Without those things, baptism would be utterly worthless. There is no guarantee that someone will not fall away from the faith after their baptism, whether they're baptized as a baby or as an adult. Westminster Confession, and sometimes hard to read, but it's often strikingly clear. It says this, although it is a great sin to condemn or neglect this sacrament, baptism is not inseparably connected with God's grace and salvation. One can be saved and reborn without baptism, and on the other hand, everyone who is baptized is not therefore unquestionably Reborn. In other words, it's saying exactly what I've been saying. Don't neglect baptism because it is a powerful command of the Lord's. But don't think that it brings salvation. It is a sign. It is a seal. Don't misuse or misunderstand this verse and this exhortation by Peter, but obey it and tell others, repent, put your faith in Christ, and then find a church. And be baptized to show that your sins have been forgiven and that you are a child of God, adopted into his eternal family. And all those who embrace their faith and believe that God cares enough about them to be baptized into his covenant family said, amen. Take some time to pray and then I'll close us.